Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, everyone. Welcome to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunuva in Thornton, Colorado. Let's open with prayer, and then I'll open some liturgy, and then we'll get started into the study. Let's pray. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King Lord, we thank you that we're allowed to gather tonight so that we can. Uh, praise your great name so that we can um, recognize that Yeshua, your son, is the one and only true Messiah of all Israel and indeed of the entire world. Lord, we are thankful that we can gather by the power of your spirit, that we can press in towards your holiness, that we can seek to be righteous, that we can seek to be pleasing to you. Lord, we thank you for this great book of Galatians and what uh, it meant to the Apostle Paul as he wrote those words uh, a couple thousand years ago. We thank you that the issues that Paul was dealing with are still relevant for us today. For indeed, Lord, we know that uh, apart from your mercy and your grace, no man will be found righteous in your sight. And so, Lord, we don't seek to build up a righteousness of our own, but rather we seek to uh, fall on your forgiveness and on your mercy and your grace and on the power of your risen Messiah, Yeshua. And so we seek to be found righteous in his name only. Lord, help us to endeavor to uh, be better students so that we can um, be proper uh, exegetes of the text so that we can um, uh, properly apply what the text is teaching us. Lord, we want to put your words in our heart. We want to hide your words in our heart. We want to guard your truths. We want to have our minds transformed by the renewing and the washing of the word. We want it to pour over us and pour through us and to permeate uh, our very being so that we can be uh, children of the master, so that we can be lights, we can be salt, uh, we can be vessels of, of truth fit for your service. We thank you for this awesome responsibility of, of studying in order to do, in order to teach others the things that we've studied and the things that we're doing. And so for that reason, Lord, we take this study seriously. Give me, Lord, uh, clarity. Give me insight. Help me to retain or to recall the, the things that I've studied in preparation for tonight's study. And I pray that you'll bless the students and enlarge their capacity to uh, retain truth as well. Uh, continue to raise us up as lights in this dark generation. 
Lord, we will be careful to give you the praise in all of these things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Okay, well, we are on week 22 of the live Galatians study. For those of you who join me week by week, I just want to say thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. Uh, thank you for um, lifting me up in prayer, um, for uh, continuing to send me questions by way of email, uh, by way of uh, your support for showing up week by week in the class. I know your schedules can be busy, and uh, taking time out each week to join me uh, is indeed a discipline. So uh, it's my heartfelt thanks uh, for all of the students who've joined me. And for those of you who have enrolled and are not able to join me live, that's okay as well. Um, I'm equally thankful for everyone who uh, enrolls in the study. Um, you can... For those of you who are, are interested in rolling, or who are maybe listening to this podcast um, on the internet, or you've um, subscribed to iTunes or whatnot, um, the, the study is available um, every Tuesday night for live. It's, it's a live internet study. You can join us Tuesday evenings from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Go to my personal website at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And right on the homepage, the very top, there should be a little uh, announcement bar that's uh, kind of golden yellow. Uh, click on that, and it'll give you the details about the live Tuesday night study. Of course, um, the study is following the exegeting Galatians commentary that I have freshly... Um, updated, uh, I, I was going to say I freshly updated it this year, but gosh, you know, as every week goes by as I'm studying the material afresh, as I continue to press in um, for more insights, as I'm availing myself of more resources and things like that, uh, I'll be honest with you, I update it uh, quite frequently, so keep watching. If, if, you're, if you're accessing the commentary via the uh, written PDF document, then if you go to my website, you'll see that it is updated as of um, March 28, 2016. That's fairly recent, and currently, it's, as it stands, it's 184 pages. But be warned, if you print it out, then at any given week or so, I could add information. So it's probably best not to print it just yet. Instead, just keep accessing it on the website, and that way you'll make sure you're getting the, the uh, most recent copy. Uh, also, if you don't, or if you're not able to find me at tatesaytora.com, uh, my congregational website, The Harvest, Congregation The Harvest, has its own website, www.graftedin.com, and I'm one of the contributing authors uh, and one of the co-webmasters there, and that's my long-standing home congregation of 15, 16 years or so. So, uh, naturally, you're going to find my materials there as well. So, I, I'm... Um, I uh, encourage you to go there as well and look for the commentary. By the way, if you go to the Grafted In website, you can find the older, original, exegeting Galatians commentary that I um, taught live to the uh, congregants there uh, week by week on Monday nights. It's it's a shorter study. It's only 28 uh, audio sessions or so, something like that, uh, 25, 28. And it's available there. It's, it dates all the way back to 2008. And it's back before I made a lot of the updates and before I even finished the commentary. So if you're in interested in listening to an older version, um, that's also available on iTunes. Uh, but um, if you want to take my recommendation, the teacher, just go ahead and follow me with the, uh, the live study, the current study, the one that's more updated, okay? 
Let's um, open with a little bit of liturgy. Uh, I'm going to use the same liturgy passages that I've been uh, selecting for this study. Uh, namely, I'm going to pick a passage out of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and I'm going to pick a passage out of the uh, Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament. And the one that I'm going to choose out of the out of the Torah or out of the, the Tanakh is from Deuteronomy chapter six, and I'm just going to read the uh, last five verses, twenty through twenty-five. And I'll tell you up in advance why I'm reading the passage, and then I'll go ahead and read the English, and then I'll read the Hebrew. And this time I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version. The reason I'm choosing Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 21 through 25, is because in traditional Christian um, uh, interpretations and understandings of the discussions of righteousness and um, justification and, and such, these are topics that naturally find their... Uh, place in Paul's writings, and we're going to deal with those in the book of Galatians. But in Deuteronomy, Moshe describes this righteousness that is available to the people of Israel if they will walk in God's ways. And we, in order for us to understand the theology behind Moshe's uh, words in Deuteronomy, we have to understand that the Bible presents two um, aspects to righteousness, and they are not diametrically opposed to one another they are rather complementary they're they're like they're what i like to call two sides of the same coin and so we got this coin called righteousness and of course the definitions of these of righteousness are set by god himself hashem sets the definition for righteousness not us so we've got two sides of one coin on one side we've got what we might describe as behavioral righteousness it is what like i call the right thing to do it's right living it's a lifestyle of living right before god's eyes it's a lifestyle of doing the right thing and remember it's a righteousness that we don't make up it's a righteousness that's described by god himself so it's a standard that god sets but it is a righteousness that anyone can attain to if they simply avail themselves of the words of God and the truths of God and the timeless um, standards that God has established in the earth. And of course, the, the best way to find out what God's righteous standards are are to read God's words. So God, uh, God through the mouth of Moshe, is telling them, if you walk in my ways, I will reckon it to you as righteous. It will be a right standing. It will be a right living. It will be behavioral righteousness. It will be the right thing to do because I'm telling you to do it. Okay? So that's side one of the coin. And the other side of the coin is what we might call the uh, positional righteousness or the forensic righteousness. This is the type of righteousness that not everyone is going to attain to in their lifetime. And this is because this is the type of righteousness that is only found when one places his faith in Yeshua. This is the righteousness that is lasting, and we could say this is the type of righteousness that is genuine and lasting. And it doesn't, I don't mean that the first type is disingenuine. Rather, what I mean is that the first type is only temporal. It's only going to... Uh, get you through life, and then once you die, once you expire, then the first type of righteousness is worth nothing anymore. It it does no one any good because you're dead. But the second type of righteousness, which is complementary to the first one, by the way, you can have them both, 
They don't work against each other. They work together. The second type of righteousness, the positional righteousness, the forensic righteousness, the legal righteousness that God can declare. This type of righteousness, the one that you gain when you place your faith in Yeshua, this type of righteousness will carry you into the age to come. This type of righteousness will carry you into heaven. It will carry you into the very presence of God for all eternity. And so it's the type of righteousness that we really should attain to. It's the one that the first one is pushing you towards. Uh, in God's ideal, then a person is born and gravitates towards the first one with the hopes, with the uh, goal of moving towards the second one. And that's one of the reasons why the entire Torah was given in the first place. It was given to push us towards the goal of attaining the type of faith in Messiah that leads to forensic righteousness. Um, so as you're reading through the scriptures, I think it's very helpful to keep in mind that both of those righteousnesses are in view. And if you do so, I don't think you'll be easily tripped up when you start reading through uh, the book of Galatians, particularly when we, talk, when we see Paul talking about um, uh, the Torah offering righteousness or uh, how are how are we made righteous? Uh, you know, things like that. We have to keep in mind that in Paul's view, both sides of that coin are in his mind, and he may be trying to to emphasize one or the other. But ultimately, both are optimal. From Paul's perspective, he's going to carry the mind of Messiah. He's going to carry God's thoughts along in his writings, and by doing so, he's going to convey to his readers, indeed to us, that um, God wants both. God doesn't want either or. God wants both. God wants you to be behaviorally righteous, and God wants you to be positionally righteous. I don't want you to make too much out of that. I don't want you to get so um, focused that, am I behavioral? Am I positional? Here's, here's, here's an easy way to figure that out. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct thy paths. That's what we read in, in the book of uh, Psalms, right? Or is it the book of Proverbs? I, I've got the quote, but I can't remember exactly where it's from. I think it's Proverbs. But um, the, the point I'm trying to make is that if we trust in the Lord with all our heart, then God will reveal to us the right thing to do as we avail ourselves of the ways and the words of God. And we don't simply walk um, uh, routinely or blindly or uh, uh, legalistically into his ways. We actually keep God's words with a heart of faith and a heart of trust and then accept Yeshua once he, God reveals Yeshua to us. Um, if you if you believe in Jesus, if you're listening to my commentary today and you believe in Jesus, you've got the most important part of righteousness already. You've got the position of righteousness, and all you need to do is just simply keep his words, become obedient to the commandment. It's that simple. It really is that simple. Okay, so um, enough of the intro. Let's read the commentary. And this time I'm just going to read through the Hebrew. I'll read verse by verse Hebrew, and then I'll go back over and just read the ESV. It's a little easier than trying to piece together the uh, wooden English translation that I've been doing in the past commentaries, okay? So, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20 reads, um, let's read the English first. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Key Ma ha edot 
Asher Tziva Adonai Eloheinu et Chem. Verse 21, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Va'amarta levincha avadim hayinu lefaro b'mitzrayim v'yotzienu adonai m'mitzrayim b'yad chazaka. Verse 22. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. V'yitain adonai otot muftim gedolim V'ra'in b'mitra'in b'faro v'chol b'to le'eneinu Verse 23. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. V'otanu chotzi misham l'ma'an havi otanu l'atet lanu et ha'aretz asher nishba la'avotenu. Verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Vayitzavenu Adonai la'asot et kol hachukim I'm sorry, let me start that verse over. Vayitzavenu Adonai la'asot et kol hachukim ha'ileh La yira et Adonai Elohenu la tov lanu kol hayamim le chayotenu kahayom hazeh. And the final verse, Pasuk 25, verse 25. And this is the one that I've been um, highlighting, and, and it's really the reason why I'm reading the liturgy, this particular verse. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. And now again, you can read it right there for yourself. Moshe says it will be righteousness for us. And the Hebrew word there for righteousness is um, tzedakah. Uh, and this righteousness, again, it is not a it's not a positional righteousness that Moshe is saying. In other words, Moses is not saying, uh, if I were to fill in uh, the word uh, positional righteousness with the word salvation or saved, because that's what positional righteousness is. Moshe is not saying. Um, it will result in salvation for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. That's not what Moshe is saying. The Torah is not a salvific document. You cannot walk and keep Torah with the hopes of being saved on a salvific level. It doesn't work that way. Instead, the Torah describes and outlines what it means to live the right lifestyle before God. It is behavioral righteousness through and through, and it contains within it the blueprint for a proper living so that you will walk as a blessed person, so that you will walk as a proper covenant member. And that's what Moshe is presenting before the people. It will be the right thing to do. It is a righteousness that is equal to the behavioral righteousness. So with that, let's turn to our passage out of the book of Galatians. And this time I'm going to read Galatians chapter 5. Uh, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. 
And the reason I'm reading this passage is because, again, um, uh, Paul, picking up this theme of freedom and this theme of uh, Yeshua uh, making us right, uh, Paul's going to challenge his Galatian readers with the idea that there's only one kind of positional forensic righteousness, and it is found in Messiah exclusively. It cannot be found in another way. And here's here's the challenge. Paul's not assuming or supposing that his readers think that if they keep the Torah, they'll be saved. That's not what Paul is assuming. Instead, what Paul is, is working from is the misunderstanding of his day that the righteousness that is available on a covenantal level, which indeed would be both sides of the coin, the total package, that this righteousness hinges on your group affiliation, particularly your identification within ethnic Israel, Jewish Israel. In Paul's day, the um, the most important place you could be was within Jewish Israel. And so for those Jews who were born with this covenant membership, uh they felt that their limited temporary covenant membership in Israel uh, provided for them on the earthly level, provided for them at birth. They felt that that actually um, tipped the scale in their favor when it came to forensic righteousness and being counted as a genuine and lasting covenant member in God's court. Uh, Put plainly, they felt that they were saved because they were Jews. They felt they were saved because they were Jews who consequently maintain their covenant membership by maintaining loyalty to the Torah. So the two sides of the coin for them in Paul's day was the first side uh, was this uh, Jewish identity that they were given at birth, and the second side of the coin was maintenance of covenant membership via um, keeping Torah, via obedience to the commandments, via uh, covenant loyalty, uh, via abstaining from um, idolatry and things like that. So essentially, it was it was the total package in Paul, Paul's day. Not that Paul believed this, at least he currently doesn't believe it. He used to believe it, but he no longer believes it. But the total package in Paul's day was um, be a Jew or either be born a Jew or convert to Judaism and then take on a Torah lifestyle and you'll be fine. And with those two um, uh, concepts uh, in view then the person was uh, supposedly counted as a genuine and lasting covenant member, and they could look forward to life in the age to come and um, eternity in God's presence. But Paul's going to disrupt all of that. He is going to upset the apple cart by explaining that genuine and lasting covenant membership is not attained by one's ethnicity. It is not secured by conversion to a, um, a status of legally becoming a Jew and then subsequently maintaining covenant membership by keeping the Torah. Paul's going to explain, as important as the Torah is in God's view, because it does describe behavior righteousness, instead, the person becomes a genuine and lasting covenant member in Israel, in God's sight, by placing his faith in Yeshua. And then, he does, in fact, begin to walk out the truths of God, the words of God, the ways of God, not to hope that it will maintain his covenant membership, but he walks out God's ways because it still is the right thing to do, and it's what God asks of covenant members. So um, that's why I'm reading Galatians chapter 5. So let's read um, the ESV, Galatians 5, 1 through 6. Quote, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
te eleutheria hemas Christas eleutherosen stekete un kai me palen zugo duleas in a keste. Verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Ide ego, Paulas, lego human hati ien peratem neste, Christas humas uden ofeles se. Verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Maturo mai de palen panti anthropo peratem nomeno, Hati ofeletes estin holen to namon poiesai. Verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified. We're going to talk about that word justified here in a moment. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Katergeta apokristu hoitines in namu dekauste tes charitas exepesate. And verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Hemes gar penumati epistios elpida, de caiusunes apectecometha. And the final verse, verse uh, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith Working through love. En gara Christo Jesu ute perotome, ti iscue ute acrobustia, ala pistis di agapes in ergumene. End. Okay. So, the verse I'm kind of highlighting in this liturgy is uh, verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you'd fallen away from grace. Um, in standard Christian uh, exegesis of this passage, we have Paul telling the Galatians that if you're going to seek your forensic righteousness through keeping the law, then you have fallen away from grace because essentially the object of your faith is in the wrong place. Instead of placing the object of your faith on Christ and Christ alone, you have placed the object of your faith on your Torah obedience, and you're hoping that if you keep the Torah perfectly, or if you keep the Torah at all, that God will reckon it to your account as righteousness. And the righteousness that's being described is, of course, salvation righteousness, the forensic righteousness, the positional righteousness, the Greek word there, uh, the phrase are being justified is, is uh, as we talked about in past teachings, it's borrowed from the dikai-o, uh, uh, a dikai word group out of the Greek is a term that was uh, very common in the courtrooms of Paul's day. The courts use this term. So it means to be justified, to be found, to be declared righteous, to be declared acquitted by the judge, to be declared um righteous by the um, the person presiding over the court. And in this case, Paul is using this term to describe not only forensic righteousness, it does include behavioral, but primarily Paul's trying to focus on the type of righteousness that is exclusive to faith in the Messiah. And what kind of righteousness is that? What kind of justification is that? Of course, that's saving faith, saving righteousness, saving Justification. That's why the focus is on um, Christ versus some other type of righteousness that uh, men hope to attain. 
And the, the reason why this verse is relevant, uh, the reason why I connected it to the Deuteronomy passage, is because the word justified is righteousness. And in, in it, it corresponds to the Hebrew word uh, tzedakah, which we mentioned earlier. And so when Moshe says, it will be your righteousness if you do the Torah, and then we supposedly have Paul saying, uh, if you do the Torah it will work against Christ. It will work against your position in Christ. Well, it sounds like Paul is disagreeing and trying to uproot what Moses is saying. It sounds like Paul is trying to discourage people from trying to keep the Torah. It sounds like Paul is trying to discourage anyone from uh, thinking that the Torah offers righteousness. And so the, the way to reconcile the two verses back together is to remember that they are two aspects of righteousness that are both Two aspects of justification um, that are both important in God's eyes, therefore they must both be important in Moshe's eyes, and they obviously must both be important in Paul's eyes. Guys understand now? So, with that, let's go ahead and jump into the study, and um, I'm going to pick up where we left off last week. If you do have the written commentary, which, warning, uh, the written commentary is subject to change from any week to week, so just uh, access it on the internet, and you'll make sure you have the most up-to-date copy. So, uh, I'm doing exactly the what I'm asking you all to do. For those, those of you who are in the live class, you can see on the screen that I've got uh, page 27 pulled up. And we're near the top of page 27. We left off last week. Uh, we're still in this uh, section called um, Section 3, Works of the Law, Part 1, Proselyte Conversion, Understanding the Background. And the reason we are parked out on this section is because, in my estimation of studying through the book of Galatians, I have found that the phrase works of the law, or works of law, the Greek is ergo namu, this phrase itself... Uh, forms one of the central pillars to Paul's theology in the book of Galatians. And what is that? That is that the, um, the, uh, uh, the works of the law that are mentioned uh, several times in this book um, either refer to, and I'm going to allow for, either refer to works of the law as in uh, Torah obedience, uh, keeping the commandments, uh, good works, etc., or they refer to something slightly um, more focused than just works than than just uh, good works, or slightly more more focused than just mere commandment keeping. And I'm going to opt for the second choice there. I think works of law is a bit more specific. We know that uh, Luther and Calvin uh, kind of interpreted and applied works of the law on the the broader general good works. Uh, application where Paul is going to trying to make sure his readers understand that good works will not save you, um, which means if it, if generic good works done by anyone can't save you, then all the more, I'm sorry, if if good works in general can't save you, then then doing what the Torah says can't save you, and I'm going to agree with the theology of that general application. I firmly. Um, I, I firmly uh, uh, believe that you cannot be saved by good works. You cannot be saved by keeping the Torah. However, what I also firmly espouse to believe and teach is that Paul wouldn't have thought that he needed to warn anyone away from misusing the Torah in that fashion. Instead, what we have going on in Paul's day, and I'm going to keep emphasizing this because I think it is, it is really one of the proper ways, a better way to to understand Paul within his own context. 
Not that it's wrong to teach that good works won't save you and to teach that from a general principle perspective. I think that's okay if pastors teach that. As long as they don't teach that keeping the Torah is bad, then I can follow along with those sermons. But uh, works of the law, as I'm um, highlighting it in my commentaries here, I believe that works of law is referring to a very limited way of viewing covenant membership as seen through the eyes of the first century Jew. And what was that way? Well, let's read, and I think you'll be able to catch it here. So, to pick up the segue from last week, um, I'm going to start on the top of page 27, and I'm going to read the paragraph uh, titled, uh, starting with In Reference. And then um, that'll kind of sew last week's and this week's commentary together. In reference to how Paul describes Gentiles as those, quote, who do not have the law, end quote, in Romans 2, 12 through 14, James D.G. Dunn also comments on the notion that ancient Israel likely held to a common Jewish belief that the Torah that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai became the sole possession and responsibility not only of Israel, but more specifically and exclusively of Jewish Israel, and that this Torah marked her out as a distinctly separate people from the pagan nations surrounding her. In other words, the law and the Jewish people are coterminous. The law defines the Jew as Jew and constitutes the boundary which separates him from the Gentiles. End quote. And that last sentence is, uh, if you look at the footnote to uh, what I just read, footnote number 16, is taken from James D.G. Dunn's work, Jesus, Paul, and the Law. Very good book that I've got sitting on my shelf here. That was out of page 221. So, um, if you catch it there in the in that comment in that uh, uh, paragraph that I just read, essentially, I believe that works of the law in Paul is better understood as this two-sided coin, and one of the sides represents Jewish identity that a person either a gains by birth or b um, gains later on in life via either marriage or conversion or something like that. Uh, but the point is, it, it's Jewish status. That's the first side of the coin. And the second side of the coin is covenant faithfulness as is described and spelled out by the pages of the Torah. In other words, it is it is keeping the law as a covenant member should be keeping it. So it's availing oneself of what what the 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 those in Paul's day would describe as maintaining covenant membership via the works of law via keeping the, the the commandments of God. In other words, keeping yourself away from idolatry, making sure that you don't do things that would get you cut off from the community of Israel, making sure that you bring the proper sacrifices when you sin, making sure that you're tithing when you should, making sure that you're doing the right thing in hopes that it will guarantee that you that you keep your standing as a good uh, as a as a as what would say a good standing covenant member that that's that's what I believe works of the law was in Paul and and what works of the law b- ends up doing is it it ends it ended up in Paul's day um, separating the Jew from the Gentile it ended up becoming an uh, like, like I described in this in this paragraph it ended up becoming a um, or as James Dunn described it it ended up becoming a um, a boundary between Jews and Gentiles it ended up becoming a reason of of separating uh, righteous people from sinners, and um, I don't think that this was God's plan. This was definitely not God's purpose for giving the Torah. It was not. It was not so that 
Jew and Gentile would be separated. Actually, it was quite the opposite. The Torah is supposed to unify the people of, of God. And it would unify the people of God as they both walked in the same standards. That's why the Torah often uses the phrases like there shall be one law for the native born as well as the stranger who sojourns among you. Uh, things like that. So let's keep reading in my commentary. I think it's fairly self-explanatory. If I would just read and not comment so much, I think most of you are following along with it, and I think we'll be able to move a little further into the commentary. So let's keep reading. These are my own words. So as I see it, we have historic Israel abusing vital aspects of their covenant status and Torah obligations based in part on her developing ambivalent attitude towards foreigners joining Israel in connection with their own self-survival mechanisms as a marginalized people group. And, of course, a bit of blindness to Yeshua as their prophesied Messiah. And we end up with the developments of what I call ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. Add to this the historic church's misunderstanding of Torah obedience and circumcision based on her negative reaction to anything that makes Gentile believers look quote-unquote Jewish, rooted in part by Israel's abuse and misunderstanding of the very same Torah that prophesied that Jesus was the true Messiah. And what do we end up with? A mess. Yes, that's what I say. We end up with a mess. Because basically today, it's no secret that Jews and Gentiles and Messiah are somewhat separated and they're somewhat divided over their stance on Torah. I attend a Messianic congregation when I was in the States, and the Messianic congregation I attend to espouses to Torah relevance for all believers, Jew and Gentile. In a word, Pastor Mark McClellan teaches that Gentile Christians should, in fact, be keeping Seventh-day Sabbath, should be keeping kosher, should be wearing um, uh, tzitzit on their garments, should be placing a mezuzah on their door, should be walking into the annual festivals described in Leviticus chapter 23, etc., etc. And yet, if you cross the street, actually in the case of the congregation where I attended in, in the States, you don't even have to cross the street, just attend that very same church building the very next day, because um, the harvest uh, leases from a Christian group, a Christian church, and so they meet in a standard Christian church on Shabbat, on Saturday, Seventh-day Sabbath, and yet the very next day on Sunday, from the same pulpit, a different pastor will stand up and tell you that the law's been done away with, and that the, Christ nailed the law to the cross, and that Paul teaches that we're no longer under the law, but that we're under grace. And so we got two differing messages being taught from the very same book. And that's why I think we've got the separation, the parting of the ways. Uh, we've got the, uh, the mess that I described in this um, chapter, or in this uh, paragraph. Let's keep reading. Put another way, historic Israel of then and now, so 1st century Israel as well as 21st century Israel, uh, historic Israel of then and now obviously misunderstands her own scriptures. Along comes the church taking her cue from unbelieving Israel concerning the meaning of Torah observance and works of the law, and we end up with the blind leading the blind. Oy vey. All right. So because of the compounding of these historic misunderstandings today as well as 2,000 years ago, it's no um, wonder, I say, that Christianity has developed an unnecessary amount of paranoia surrounding circumcision, eventually going so far as to reject it altogether, which, in my opinion, is a clear violation of God's words to Abraham in Genesis 17:13, which read, quote, So shall my covenant be in your flesh as what an everlasting covenant, end quote. Right? As I pause, if God told Abraham in Genesis 
that the covenant of circumcision will be an everlasting covenant, then where does the church coming later on, where do they get the authority to teach that circumcision has been done away with in Messiah? Where do they get the authority to assume that Paul taught that circumcision is no longer relevant? How could Paul uproot the words of Moshe? How could Paul contradict the words of God in Genesis 17.13? That's my challenge to your traditional Christian understanding of circumcision. Let's keep reading. In some ways, I cannot blame them, the church, for taking this stance, because in some ways, it's as if Jewish misuse of the covenantal sign of circumcision caused God to act in a disciplining father, uh, caused God to act as a disciplining father, and, quote, temporarily take that toy away from the Jewish people, end quote, until they could learn how to properly appreciate and apply its true biblical meaning. I don't mean that God reversed his policies concerning the importance and necessity of circumcision for male members in Israel. What I mean is that using his messenger to the Gentiles, God, through Paul, teaches Israel a valuable theological lesson regarding misusing the sign of the Abrahamic covenant known as circumcision. And that's why we can read in Galatians 5, where Paul says in verse 2, I just read it in the liturgy, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Right? And then again in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So, do we have Paul denigrating circumcision? Do we have Paul looking down at circumcision? Do we have Paul looking, reading through uh, Genesis 17, where we just read those words about um, uh, Abraham and circumcision and God? Do we have Paul looking at those passages and shaking his head and saying, gee, it's a shame. I'm sorry, God, but circumcision is not going to count for anything anymore now that your son has come. I'm sorry, but anyone who would seek to be circumcised is going to work against the work of Christ? Is that what Paul's teaching? No, 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 that's not what Paul's teaching. We have to look elsewhere for our uh, understanding of these words here in Galatians chapter 5 if we are to practice a hermeneutic that lines up Scripture with Scripture. That's a very important hermeneutic principle to remember. Scripture cannot, must not contradict Scripture. If it does, then we have Scripture undermining itself. We have Scripture cutting the um, root out from underneath itself. And, and in such a scenario, a tree is going to topple. And so God is not undermining himself by sending Paul to teach the, the uh, abrogation of, of commandments and um, standards that he established uh, earlier on in the Torah, God's not going to send the Apostle Paul to teach that circumcision is done away with. We have to understand Paul's words differently, and that's what I'm hoping to do in this commentary. So let's keep reading. We're on the top of page 28. Paul effectively relegates circumcision to back burner status without actually destroying the biblical command, biblical command by establishing halakha, that is group policy. He establishes halakha that forbids Gentiles from taking on circumcision during their initial entry into the commonwealth of Israel via faith in Yeshua. And that's why I read Galatians 5, 2 through 6. Look, Paul, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage of you. Why would Paul forbid circumcision in Galatians 5, verse 2? It's because the Galatian Christians, those Galatian um, congregants, 
were entertaining notions of accepting circumcision, read here as Jewish identity. They were entertaining the notion of taking on adult circumcision, read here as proselyte conversion. They were taking on that with the hopes that it would grant them a, a position that they felt that they didn't already have. These Galatian Christians were being duped and believing, into believing that they were not full-fledged covenant members until they became Jewish Israelites in God's people group. And they were believing this lie because that's what the agitators, a.k.a. the influencers, a.k.a. the Judaizers, for a word that I don't like to use, but for those of you who have heard that before, the Judaizers were teaching these uh, Gentiles these Gentile Christians, uh, that they were not yet full-fledged covenant members until they took on the legal status of Jewish within Israel. And then and only then could they be counted by God and subsequently counted by those other Jewish leaders as genuine and lasting, valuable, viable covenant members within God's people group. And then, of course, once you became a Jew in that day, the Torah was given to you, it was granted to you, you had been permission to begin to maintain, as it were, your standing within the group. Uh, so you join the group by being a Jew, or becoming a Jew, or converting to Jewishness, and then you maintained your group membership, so to say, by staying away from idolatry, by keeping the Torah, etc. In other words, the whole package in the first century was... Um, the whole thing was really under the power of the flesh, if you, if you really think about it. And that's why Paul is so upset about that bad theology. It's because you, you came into the cup, you entered into the group, or you entered into the covenant by the power of the flesh. In other words, by the power of being, by the power of your ethnicity. And then you maintained your position by the power of the flesh that is under, under self-effort, under keeping the Torah. And that's what works of the law means. It's the whole package. It's, it's the one coin with both sides in view. And so that's why Paul's going to say, look, I say to you that if you accept Jewish identity as your membership into the group, then Christ as the true entry point of membership to the group is going to be of no advantage to you. Because basically it's two different doors, two opposing doors, two opposing objects of faith, two, two different paths altogether. And we know that Jesus said that, that there's only one way. What did he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Which means the path to the Father cannot be through ethnicity. It cannot be through the works of the law, which is becoming a Jew and then keeping the Torah. It cannot be that path. Therefore, the path of the works of the law, which is becoming a Jew, being, being slash becoming a Jew and then keeping the Torah, that path is a false gospel. It is a false gospel. It doesn't mean that being a Jew or becoming a Jew is bad. And it doesn't mean that being born a Jew or becoming a Jew and then keeping the Torah is bad. It doesn't mean that either parts, it doesn't mean that the, the, um, the ingredients themselves are bad. Being a Jew or becoming a Jew is not a bad thing. And obviously keeping the Torah is not a bad thing because God asks Israel to keep the Torah over and over again in the Old Testament. No, no, no. It's not that, that Paul is against the concepts themselves. Rather, Paul is against the mistaken gospel, the false gospel that teaches that those things will lead you to Christ, that those things will lead you to the Father, that those things will lead you to be counted as righteousness, viz. saved. 
It's when you place those things as your entry point into the covenant and your maintenance uh, or 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 um, your uh, uh, remaining within the covenant. It's when you put those things as the um, object of your faith. That's when Paul's going to become heated and it's going to get upset. So let's keep reading my commentary. So this is why those Jews in, uh, for instance, Acts twenty-one twenty-one were beginning to fear the rumor. Remember that Paul was attempting to actually uproot Torah uh, a.k.a. Um, Genesis 17, where we read about the covenant of circumcision, they thought that Paul is trying to uproot Torah with circumcision, etc., by forbidding circumcision for Jews as well. And the quote there that I have in my commentary, quote, They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs, end quote. And so we can see why those Jews in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago, those Torah zealous Jews, those Jews who were zealous for Torah, but also who had believed in Jesus, we read about that in Acts 21, these um, Torah observant Jews who were zealous for the Torah as well as believing in Jesus, they were a little leery of Paul. They were a little, they were upset by the rumor because the rumor was that according to Galatians chapter 5 verse 2, Paul was forbidding circumcision because that's what it sounds like Paul's saying, right? Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ is no advantage to you. Uh, verse 6, from Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So it, <clears throat> It sounds like Paul is really forbidding circumcision. And I tell you, you know, in 2,000 years of studying the Bible through the historic Christian hermeneutic, that's basically the understanding that we're presented with today. And I'm here to tell you, I don't think that's a very good way to understand Paul. In fact, I don't think, don't think that is even historically or theologically tenable. And so I reject that particular interpretation that Paul is teaching that circumcision doesn't count for anything or that circumcision by itself will uproot the work of Christ. That feeds right into the rumors. In other words, to believe that Galatians is Paul's way of teaching that we no longer have to be circumcised as the people of God, particularly that we Jews no longer have to circumcise our children, etc., or that, or that um, keeping the commandments are, are worthless in Christ, that uh, the law of the law of Moses has been superseded by the law of Christ or something to that effect, like the prevailing popular Christian view teaches. In other words, to teach that is to actually fall in line with the rumor of Acts 21. Are you guys seeing that? We don't want to fall into that because that's what it is. It was a rumor. It was a rumor then. It's a rumor today. And, and quite frankly, rumor's false. And that's why Paul's going to disprove the rumor by his very actions in the book of Acts. So your homework this week is to go back and read Acts 21 and uh, keep your thumb in Galatians and see how the two work together. So let's keep reading my commentary. Paul's stance in 1 Corinthians 7.19 that, quote, being circumcised means nothing, end quote, which is similar to what we've just read here in Galatians 5, verse 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. And we're going to read it again later on. Um, basically, this phrase that, that Paul is saying, circumcision means nothing, uh, it must have been quite shocking to Torah zealous Jews outside of the context it was meant for, which was what? To show that in Messiah, Jewish identity was not a prerequisite to be accepted as righteous in the community. And when I say righteous there, I mean both righteousness is in view, right? Both of those 
aspects of righteousness, both positional righteousness as well as forensic righteousness, the total package. Jewish identity was not the prerequisite. And yet, that's what they were teaching in Paul's day, and that's why Paul had to write the book of Galatians. Let's keep reading. Uh, this next paragraph, these next few paragraphs that I read, I've, I've read them in past. Uh, remember, this is a revised version of works of the law, uh, this revised uh, section, because I already started teaching works of the law in this updated commentary, and then I started uh, severely updating it. And so I've really read this part already, so I'm going to skip through this somewhat. Um, basically, I have these lengthy quotes from the uh, Wikipedia where it talks about, shows how in rabbinic literature... Uh, circumcision itself was basically glorified. That's the way I see it. Um, I say that um, first century uh, Israel basically glorified uh, circumcision. And let's just pull one quote. Uh, here we go. One of the quotes says, uh, To be born circumcised was regarded as the privilege of the most saintly of people from Adam, who was made in the image of God, and Moses to Zerubbabel. And the quote is referencing uh, the Midrash as well as the uh, Talmud at the Tractate Sota. And so um, I don't need to read through all of those quotes. Again, we can uh, scroll down if you're, if you're reading, following along with written. Just scroll down all the way to the paragraph that starts with Mark Nanos. We're near the top of page 29 for those of you who are in the live class right now. Uh, so, we read that quote before. Um, Mark Nanos, who is a Messianic Jewish Christian author, he has also demonstrated most credibly that the Judaisms of the first century functioned with a serious theological flaw in regards to their view of circumcision. I put this quote in here so that those of you who are following my commentary can help to see that I'm not making this up on my own. I'm not the only one who holds to the view that works of the law in Paul doesn't mean wooden, mere merit theology, or just mere commandment keeping. Rather, works of the law uh, carries with it the idea of Jewish identity or Jewish, Jewish ethnicity, which, which undergirds uh, Torah keeping. So works of the law has as its foundation, this is according to the Jewish self-understanding of the first century, first century Jewish self-understanding. Works of the law has as its foundation Jewish identity. So you could see it as uh, the, the, the Torah itself was viewed as a Jewish-only document, a, an exclusive Jewish document. Therefore, Gentiles were forbidden from keeping Torah in the first place, in the first century. And for the, for the most part, 21st century Jews still hold to this view of Torah, that it is the exclusive prized possession, trophy, as it were, of the Jewish people. It is a badge that is to be worn on the outside of the uniform for everyone to see. It is a point of boasting, which, of course, all of this is wrong. I disagree with the theology, but I have to, um, I have to, uh, um, I have to contend with the historical reality that that's the way the Jewish people wielded Torah in order to understand Paul's writings a little better. So Mark Nanus is going to talk about this as well. Let's pick up as I keep reading, let's pick up his discussion from a paper he wrote entitled The Local Contexts of the Galatians Towards Resolving a Catch-22, which at the time I downloaded it on uh, May of 2005. It was available for reading at his site, and there's a link there in my commentary. I'm not going to read the whole quote because I've already read this before as well. The only part I want to highlight is... Um, let's see... 
Okay, is is basically the last paragraph, uh, the last sentence. The conflict, speaking of the conflict between uh, the Jewish Christians of Paul's day, uh, or I'm sorry, the conflict between the Gentile Christians of Paul's of Paul's letter and the agitators or the influencers. I, in fact, I borrowed the term influencers from Mark Nanos himself. The the conflict um, is, that that he's going to describe. Uh, is is characterized uh, or highlighted in this quote from uh, Mark Nanos. Basically, the last paragraph or the last sentence reads: "The conflict arises because of the claim that their Gentile members are to be relegated, regarded as full members of these Jewish groups apart from proselyte conversion." Um, so, what we had again, uh, the better way to understand Paul within the context of what he wrote is to understand that in Paul's day, the um, the Judaisms were teaching that if Gentiles wanted to be wanted to be found within the scope of God's promises, wanted to be uh, brought into the um, within the uh, uh, Commonwealth of Israel, if they wanted to be brought into the uh, umbrella of God's blessing, and they wanted to be counted as righteous, if they wanted to, uh, basically, uh, from their perspective, from the Jewish people's perspective of the first century. If the Gentiles wish to even be recognized by God at all, then the, the the first thing the Gentile had to do was to take on the status of Jewish. In other words, he had to convert, he had to go to the proselyte ceremony. And then once he did that, then he became a Jew. And then once he became a Jew, these are the steps described. Once he went through the proselyte ceremony and became a Jew, then he was given the Torah as his inheritance. It became his because he was adopted into the family of Jewish Israel. And as a Jewish Israelite, he was afforded access to the Torah, the access that was formerly um, uh, prohibited to him because he was a Gentile. But once he became a legally recognized Jew, then um, Torah obedience became his. And in fact, it became his um, Torah, Torah observance became his, his covenant responsibility. And he maintained his position in the covenant in the group by keeping Torah, not by, um, not by doing other things, but, but essentially by keeping himself away from uh, uh, idolatry and things like that. And so Paul comes along and, and upsets the apple cart by saying, no, 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 it's not by being Jewish that we're brought into the group, nor is it by being Jewish that we stay in the group. And it's not by keeping Torah that we are brought into the group or stayed into the group. All of those things become points of contention in Paul. And the solution in Paul is not to get a, not to do away with Jewish identity, nor is it to do away with Torah observance. Even though those two ingredients were being misused by the Judaisms of Paul's day, Jewish identity and Torah maintenance, uh, Torah obedience, i.e. the works of the law. Those things were being misused. <clears throat> they were being misused by Paul's contemporaries, but that doesn't mean that the solution, in Paul's view, is to get rid of those ingredients. Like the standard Christian church teaches, we don't jettison Jewish identity, we don't get rid of Jewish identity, and we don't get rid of Torah. Those are not the answers, that's not the solution to the problem. The problem is, you can still have your Jewish identity, and you can have your Torah observance. What you need to do is place your faith in Messiah, and then those two other those two ingredients I just mentioned, Jewish identity and Torah observance, those i.e. works of law, then those things will matter in God's eyes. They will count towards genuine and lasting righteousness, Dikai Uo. They will matter towards God's um, righteous standards, Tzedakah, because they are within the scope of the proper object of faith, namely Yeshua HaMashiach.
Let's keep reading. We're on the top of page 30. With this background of circumcision and proselyte conversion for Gentiles in mind, I think we're now better poised to uncover the true meaning of phrases such as works of the law and under the law. I maintain that the phrase, quote, works of the law, end quote, cannot simply mean, quote, deeds done in accordance with Torah commands, end quote, if we're to give the surviving Jewish documents of the first century the proper place among scholarly research. But even more important is the fact that if we interpret works of the law as Torah observance, then we end up with Paul discouraging Gentiles, and by inclusion Messianic Jews as well, from keeping the commandments of God, a position I believe is untenable, given Paul's positive views of Torah observance spelled out elsewhere in his letters. And there's a footnote, number 18, uh, see, for instance, and I've already mentioned this, 1 Corinthians 7.19, which reads, quote, Being circumcised means nothing, and being uncircumcised means nothing. What does mean something is keeping God's commandments, end quote. The reason I bring this quote into my teaching here is because of the seeming uh, discrepancy or paradox uh, created by the verse itself. And this is what I mean. If circumcision itself is merely a commandment of God, then why would Paul say that being circumcised means nothing, but what does mean something is keeping the commandments? Because isn't circumcision a commandment of God? It's almost as if Paul was saying, and this would, of course would be double speak. this of course would be nonsense. It's almost as if Paul were saying, being circumcised means nothing, but what does mean something is being circumcised. You see how that's, see how that's nonsense? Or we could have Paul saying, uh, keeping God's commandment means nothing, but what does mean something is keeping God's commandments. Right? See how that, how that that logic is 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 faulty. What we have to do is we have to interpret the verse as circumcision in this verse referring to Jewish identity in light of the um, in light of salvation history, in light of the uh, ground at the foot of the cross, which is equal for all people groups. So that's why Paul would say being circumcised means nothing. What he's saying is your Jewish ethnicity doesn't count towards salvation and your Gentile ethnicity doesn't count towards salvation. Neither one of these um, uh, identities is advantageous over and against the other. That's what the verse is trying to say. Okay, so I hope that is um, going to provide a better look for you at... Uh, some of the difficult phrases in Paul, particularly this one about um, um, circumcision and things like that. Uh, it is about 10 minutes uh, left towards, towards the top of the hour. We have about 10 minutes left, so I think this is a good place to call it quits for the Galatians notes and um, turn to our look at Romans like I've been doing. And I think I'll probably be able to finish out Romans tonight. Uh, remember, what I've been doing is kind of working... Uh, using a, uh, a uh, using Romans chapter two and chapter three as kind of a test case for my understanding of works of the law, since Rome in Romans three twenty uh, we see this phrase works of the law showing up, um, and so we left off last week in Romans where uh, uh, basically we already we've already encountered uh, this phrase works of the law. In fact, I'll just read the verse. Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And what we're um, reminding ourselves is that Romans has... Romans itself was written 
after the book of Galatians. And so if if Paul introduces a phrase in Romans, and we've already talked about how that in Romans 3.20, this is the first time it shows up. Paul introduces this phrase in Romans that uh, it seems like it's just a, a what if it's called, a, a, a bolt out of the blue. In other words, just, you know, he, he talks about a topic that, from our perspective, seems to be sudden. Yet, surely, the readers of the book of Romans must have had some type of background, at least that's my um, understanding. They must have had some type of context behind his words. Otherwise, his words are nonsense. So, um, I think that uh, Paul's readers in Romans were probably familiar with the popular Jewish idea that uh, Jewish ethnicity is what counted towards getting one into the people group of God. And then, once a person was recognized as a Jew, that person had to take on Torah observance in order to maintain his position within the the people group recognized as the righteous. In other words, um, I think Paul's readers were familiar enough with the phrase uh, ergo namu, works of the law. They were familiar enough with it so that when Paul introduces it out of the blue in Romans 3.20, I don't think they would have misunderstood, particularly its contest, uh, context anyway. So um, that's why I think uh, uh, that we need to exegete Romans the way we're doing it. Besides, in verse 20, it starts out with the, um, let me pull up the Greek here, it starts out with the Greek conjunction, therefore. Uh, therefore, by works of the law, diati ex ergo namu, I'm kind of reading woodenly, not will be justified, u dikai any flesh, pasasarx, before him, enopion uh, altu, uh, through indeed law, diagar namu, is knowledge of sin, epigenosis hamartius. So the entire verse, diati ex ergo namu, u dikai enopion autu, dia gar namu, epigenosis hamartius. Therefore, by works of law. Why does Paul start out with therefore? I once heard a, pa- a Christian pastor say, whenever you see a therefore in the passage, you need to stop and ask yourself, why? what is it therefore? Right? And in Paul's case, the therefore is there because Paul is is providing a semi-conclusion to what he's already been talking about previously. And from context, what we can see is that what he's been talking about, in fact, he introduced the context way up in, say, chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Now, isn't that interesting? Here we have Paul bringing in Jewish identity along with circumcision all over again. And it's those two terms that are identical to our primary discussion in the book of Galatians, right? Circumcision and Jewish identity, which, if you recall from previous teachings that I've taught, Jewish identity and circumcision were essentially um, spoken about in similar fashion. They were... They were um, they were synonymous terms. To call oneself a member of the circumcised was to identify oneself as a Jew. Uh, for instance, we know in Galatians uh, chapter 2 that, and I keep bringing this out, Paul describes his ministry to the uncircumcised, and he describes Peter's ministry to the 
circumcised. And what does Paul mean? He means that the circumcised were those who were who self-identified as Jews, and the uncircumcised were those who were identified by the Jews as Gentiles, viz. uncircumcised. So uh, we have what we call a metonymy going on. Um, the word Jew is kind of like a circumlocution. I'm sorry, the word circumcision is kind of like a circumlocution for Jew. So Paul says, what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Um, what is the value of taking on the covenant of circumcision as a Jew? And uh, contrary to what popular Christian, uh, Christian theology would like to imagine, Paul doesn't say they're worthless. Paul says in Romans 3, 2, much in every way. So we do have an advantage of being Jewish. We do have an advantage of being circumcised. This does not mean that 1 Corinthians 7 that I just read um, means nonsense. It just means that Paul understands uh, the nature of um, how circumcision fits in with the uh, the total package. So 1 Corinthians 7.19 is not being uprooted. But uh, continuing in Romans, we have the context built from uh, Romans chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 1 with uh, Paul referring to Jewish people and how that uh, God singled out the Jewish people to receive uh, the covenants and to carry along the covenant promises, uh, the prophets, the writings, the promises of Messiah until Messiah actually arrived on the scene. So the Jewish identity that Paul is is recognizing here that has an advantage is that from a salvation historical perspective, uh, the Jewish people were chosen as the servants of God to carry that message along, to carry salvation history along, uh, not only in their um, heritage, but through the very physical offspring, because we know that the Messiah would be born of Jewish parents. So, um, but at the same time, um, it's this Jewish identity that actually tripped the Jewish people up. It tripped them up and led them to believe that eventually that they really were better than other people groups. That's why Paul says in verse 9, right? Now you have to, you have to balance these two verses out. Romans 3.1 says, What advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? And his answer in verse 2 is, Much in every way. But then in verse 9 he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? See what I'm saying? We have two verses that seem to work against one another. He asks in verse 1 of chapter 3, what advantage has a Jew? What's the value of circumcision? And he answers by saying, there is an advantage, and there does have value. But then in verse 9 he says, so are we Jews any better off? You would think he should say, yes, we are better off, because we've got this advantage. But instead he says, no, not at all. We're not better off. So what Paul is doing is simply putting Jewish identity and circumcision within their proper perspective. That is, they're not better off. Better off than who? Better off than who? Better off than the Gentiles. Better off in God's eyes than any other people groups who are not Jews or Gentiles. And how we know that this is the right context? Because in the very next verse, or sorry, within the same verse, he says, No, not at all, for we've already charged that all... All what? All people groups, all both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. So Jews are not better off, they're not better than Gentiles in regards to righteousness in God's eyes. All people groups are under the uh, penalty of sin until they come into the knowledge and faith and Messiah. And so that, and then he goes into the uh, lengthy quotes 
from the prophets. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Uh, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And he's moving towards this context of the relationship of Jew and Gentile to one another in God's eyes towards this context of where Torah fits in. That's when he gets into verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And we already talked about how that um, in verse 19, let me just pull up the Greek again for you as well. Uh, Romans 3, and we're almost done here, by the way. So for those of you who are sticking around for the live chat afterwards, just just hang on. I'll, be, I'll get to that in a few minutes. Uh, verse 19, where it says, We know moreover that, the, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, Oidemen de hati hosa hasad ho namas lege twice into namo. This phrase, twice into namo, to those under the law, la lehina pan stoma frage, kai hupadikas genetai pas has cosmos to theo. Uh, to those under the law, it speaks that every mouth might be stopped and under judgment might be all the world to God. And then he moves into verse 20, diati ex ergonomu, therefore by works of the law. So this phrase in verse 19, tois in to namu, to those under the law, en to namu, uh, under the law, the preposition en there uh, refers to those within the um, boundaries of Torah uh, from their cultural perspective. First, in other words, firstly, Paul's describing Jews. It speaks to those who have Torah uh, as a natural lifestyle. But it doesn't exclusively mean all of those, because we know that the law is the is the standard of righteousness among all people groups. That's why he goes on to say that that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth might be stopped. Every mouth, pan stoma frage. And every mouth, uh, pan every, stoma, stoma, I should say, not stoma, stoma, mouth. Every mouth uh, refers to, of course, all men. So we know, essentially, he's focusing first on the Jewish people because he said that this advantage that they have is that they were given the um, the, uh, uh, the the words of God, the the, 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 the they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's what he says in Romans three two, and so the the um, the oracles of God describe the righteousness of God, and therefore the righteousness of God that is displayed by the oracles of God that were given to the Jewish people first extend down to the Gentiles as well. And that's why he can say in verse nineteen that we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are in the law, those who have the law as their um, natural possession, Jewish people, but it also extends to those who uh, are brought into the covenant via faith of Messiah, so that every mouth may be stopped, every mouth, and the whole world, the, um, what does he say, the uh, uh, the cosmos, the whole world, the cosmos is where we get our English word, cosmos in the Greek, the whole world might be held accountable to God, held accountable under the same righteous standard. In other words, Paul's not saying that Jews have one standard and Gentiles have a different standard. The point he's trying to make is that the Torah covers everybody. The Torah held, holds everyone accountable to the same righteous standard. And that's when he says in verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. In other words, 
It's not that by keeping the Torah, no human being will be justified in his sight. Human being there is sarks, there for flesh. Uh, basically, pasa sarks, any flesh. He's not saying for by keeping the Torah, nobody will be made saved in his sight, although the theology behind such a statement would be true. Rather, and I'll close with this, what Paul is saying is, for by being Jewish, nobody will be justified in his sight. Because, and a justified there is, is the word we already mentioned, dikaiothesitai. Uh, for by being Jewish, no one will be counted among the righteous. Forensically. Forensically. In other words, you can't be saved by being Jewish. And I think his phrase, works of the law, ergonomu, is identical to the way he uses it in the book of Galatians. And so with that, um, uh, let's see, does he mention works of law again in the rest of Romans? Righteousness of God has been manifest. Uh, I suppose I can just read the, the end of the chapter, and then I'll close with that. Verse 21, Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Notice again, no distinction meaning no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And where would this distinction have been seen? It would have been seen in verse 20 by the works of the law, the ergon the Jewish ethnicity that I'm saying how, that I'm purporting is how we read it. For by works of law, no human being will be justified. So, um, we could have verse 22, the last half thing, saying, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no works of the law going on here. That's what Paul would be saying. There's no works of the law. There's no Jewish ethnicity that gives uh, primacy, primacy over and against a Gentile identity. That's why he can say in verse 23, For all both Jew and Gentile, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made righteous. The, uh, the Greek word, dikaiumene, uh, dikaiumenoi, uh, in verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We see here the message is unified. It's the same as in Galatians. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. And again, remember when Paul says righteousness, when he's talking about the right standing of God, uh, the dikaiosunes in verse 25, the righteousness is the justification, the, um, the standard of righteousness that God uh, can impart to an individual uh, from a forensic, from a legal perspective, from the uh, positional perspective. This was to show God's righteousness, uh, primarily the one that's found in Messiah, but it also pulls in with it the behavioral righteousness, because the person who's made righteous also goes on to live righteous, right? Amen? Amen. That's a good place to say amen. Verse 25 again. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And verse 26. It was to show his righteousness. There's our, there's our dikaiosunes again. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. Two groups, two words that are also rooted in the same uh, word group. So we have dikaiosunes for righteousness, and then we have autan uh, dikaion for um, might be just, kai, and dikaiunte, dikaiunta, 
uh, for the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Ton ek pistios Jesu. And verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? And verse 27 is telling. What type of boasting is referring to? Well, recall in verse, in chapter 2, uh, let me scroll up there, chapter 20, chapter 2, verse, um, Oh, verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, there's boasting in verse 17. And then when we get down to verse um, 23, still speaking to the Jew, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. So the boasting is both in God and in the law. And why would the Jews boast in God and the law? Well, they were boasting because they felt that they exclu- they had the exclusive scoop on God. They had the exclusive um, hold of Torah, exclusive to the exclusion of the Gentiles. And that's what works of the law is referring to. So now we can put verse um, 27 into context. What then becomes of our boasting? In other words, is Jewish boasting even warranted? No, Paul says it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. Isn't that interesting? That by a law of works, then boasting is not excluded. Why? Because the law of works, the law of works of the law, the law of Jewish ethnicity, actually upholds the boasting. It actually fosters the boasting. It actually um, um, strengthens the boasting, which, of course, is wrong. So Paul's going to say, um, what becomes of our, of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. No, but by the law of faith by the law of pistios, by the law of faith in Christ. In verse 28, for we hold that one is justified. There's our dikaiuste. Uh, again, dikaiusthai. We are justified by, what does he say? Apart from works of the law. So he does use works of the law again. Apart from ergonamu. We're justified apart from being Jewish. We're justified apart from our Jewish ethnicity. And the way I know that this is the context, you know, I, I want to finish this, but I don't want to rush it. So I'm going to stop here because I want to save this as a cliffhanger for next week. We're going to start again with verse 27 next week. We're going to read verse 27 through the end of the chapter because I think this is kind of the meat of the context of Romans chapters 2 and 3, building towards this context of our true justification in Christ and uh, how it, our true justification in Christ uh, does not... Um, is not of uh, uh, founded or not grounded in our Jewish ethnicity, and Paul uh, gives it to us uh, masterfully in these last few uh, verses of Romans three. So I'm going to stop there. So um, let's close in prayer, and uh, next week we'll be ready to pick up our Galatians commentary. With uh, let's see, we are we are on the top of we're in the middle near the top of page thirty. And we're going to start with a paragraph entitled uh, that starts off as convenient as it is to simply interpret works of the law, etc. So let's close in prayer and uh, we'll see you next week, okay? Abba, we bless your name and I thank you for another opportunity to uh, study the book along with the students. Father, I pray that you'll continue to uh, grant us mercy and grace as we press in as Jews and Gentiles seeking to be pleasing in your sight. Father, we know that your words describe 
the very right lifestyle, the very right living, the way we are to live our lives according by faith. And Lord, we know that we do not walk by sight, but we walk by faith. For that's what Paul tells us, walk by faith and not by sight, not by, not by works. We don't walk according to the flesh, as it were. We walk according to the Spirit. And in doing so, we know that we will fulfill the righteousness of God. And so we know, Father, that as we continue to press in to Yeshua, that we begin to clothe ourselves with the Messiah, as we begin to, to continue to put on the Messiah, that we will, in fact, uh, be pleasing in your sight. And we know that, that that is the right way to live. And so bless you, Lord, for continuing to to lead us and to draw us by your Spirit towards right living and towards powerful living a lifestyle that 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 has the ability to stand against sin to take a stand against the evil to take a stand in messiah to stand uh like uh, ephesians chapter 6 tells us to wear the armor and to know that we can uh, make a difference in the lives of others give us the opportunity to witness to others to share the good news with those around us who are seeking those who are in darkness, those who do not yet know that Yeshua is the only way to the Father. Help us to be bold in our witness. Uh, bring us back together next week, refreshed and ready to study once again. Lord, we will be careful to give you the praise and the glory in all things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>